0: we are going to be opening up the letter of the Lord Jesus Christ to his dear church in Ephesus tonight. (laughs) Big welcome to anybody that I haven't met yet. I really hope we get to meet afterwards. And of course, we'll get to chat a little bit one-sidedly, but nonetheless chat through Q&A afterwards as well. We have uh, uh, found ourselves in the... uh, letters that Jesus is writing in those first few chapters of the book of Revelation, he front ends the great vision about judgment and and uh, and Christ's kingdom and and all of that. He front ends the great revelation with letters that John uh, hears Jesus speak. He writes down and then sends to the churches that are also going to receive the matter of the revelation of what is going to be seen. It is so common that we want to. Uh, and I've been saying this each week, that we want to know uh, what each other want around church. Are you joining a church and you hope that the pastors sit down with you and say, what would you like this church to do to be the most uh, 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 serviceable to you? What do you want this place to be like? What do you want to see? What what do you want to hear preached on? What things do you want to identify us and characterize us, us as? But we don't do that here because we ask, first and foremost, what the authority of our faith, the Word of God, says about what the church ought to be. And we have this amazing, of course, other sections like the pastoral epistles and stuff like that, where we find the apostles speaking to us about what we ought to be seeing in churches. But we also have this gold mine at the front end of Revelation, where we have established churches that Jesus then writes to, to critique and exhort and call to repentance and encourage uh, certain churches. So we actually have Jesus' own preferences, what he wants churches to be like, what he wants us to be known for, what he wants to see in the local gatherings. We have his. Right right here it's very very fundamental that we look at this and understand what it is that he's saying and it is a great blessing that god has inspired this to be written so we've seen so far we've been introduced to the lord jesus of course in former weeks uh, as we went through revelation chapter 1 we saw him as the as john saw the vision of jesus exalted glorified exalted high above every other king he's the priest and prophet and and the king over the church all of those great and amazing things But now we're hearing what he says to the churches. So look with me at chapter 2, and we're going to be reading uh, verse 1 to 8. This is going to be the letter from Jesus Christ himself speaking through the Apostle John to the Ephesian church. And he says the following. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... We find here Jesus identify multiple different things and we're gonna go through them one by one as he writes this letter to Ephesus through the Apostle John. First, we're gonna see Jesus identify himself. Now look back to verse one. This is gonna be the same in each letter that Jesus speaks to his churches. He's going to go back to chapter one, verse 13 through 17 and draw on one of those parts of the imagery about him and he's gonna draw on a specific part that is intentionally relevant to the church that he's writing to. So next week, we're gonna see that he is the resurrected, he identifies himself as the resurrected one because he's writing to a church that is in the process of being killed. Today, he is reaching back and pulling on an identifying Mark being the one who holds the pastors in his hands, that's the imagery of the stars, and who walks among the lampstands which are represented as churches. So he is very intentionally identifying himself tonight to Ephesus, as the one with the authority in the local churches. Jesus is saying, I hold the pastoral office, the angels or the messengers of the churches, those who speak God's truth to you, I hold them in my hand. They are in my right hand. We often see in the Old Testament, God's right hand is a symbol of his power and his judgment and his, his strength. Well, what we're seeing here is that the pastors are in Christ's right hand because he has a close watch and a close Uh, observance over the pastoral office. I care what is being preached, he's saying. I hold men to account for what they preach. And I hold women to account if they try and preach. All of that is included. Jesus cares about the leadership of the church. He holds them in his right hand because he knows, as much as the devil knows, as much as our, 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 our government knows and the world system knows, that the leaders set the example. You get a bad leader in, the whole body starts to go sick. You get the wrong teachers in, you get the wrong doctrine believed by the body. And so it is so important who leads the church. And Jesus is saying, those who lead the church, I hold to account. And yet I don't do so from a distance. He says, I've got them in my right hand. And I'm the the one walking, he says, not just standing now, but walking amidst the lampstands, which symbolize the local churches. Jesus is saying that though I'm enthroned, though I'm distinct, though I am exalted, though I'm lifted up, yet by the Holy Spirit I presence myself in the presence of the local churches. That means, though few in number, though though up and down in socioeconomic status, though going great or going poorly in our reputation, wherever we are, where we are a people that name the name of Christ that come under his name, love his gospel, sing his glories, and submit to his word, we are here in the spirit, in Christ's presence. He is walking in our midst. What a glorious thing to realize about the local gathered assembly. And yet, Jesus is not just among us to dish out good feelings. He is among us assessing. This is the idea that we saw a couple of weeks back that Jesus is... Pictured as a priest, just like an Old Testament priest would work in the temple and would make sure that the the lampstands were lit and the oil was sufficient in them and they were dusted and they were working. So also now Jesus is seen as the guy from chapter one in in the robe with the sash like a priest would have tending to the lampstands. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus is in our midst to assess us. He speaks accurately when he he commends a church on their benefits. He speaks accurately when he rebukes a church for their sins. He is among us doing a work on us so that we might greater be able to glorify him and image his likeness. That's how he identifies himself today as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the church elders, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, intentionally working on the church. Secondly, secondly, we see Jesus identifies the church that he's writing to. It actually happens first, but I make up my own order. The first thing he says is, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So he's identifying who's receiving this. Now, that's enough for Jesus to say, and if you're the Ephesian church, you know who you are receiving that, but we need to get a little bit familiar with the church of Ephesus. So I'm not going to say go back and open up the book of uh, of the Ephesians. I'm going to go back even further and say go and open up with me to the book of Acts in chapter 19 and 20. In chapter 19 of the book of Acts, we see the, the, the church in Ephesus be planted and we see its first two years documented for us by Luke the doctor. Acts chapter 19. <clears throat> now, of course, Asia is like the other churches uh, in Asia Minor. If you, if you have a good Bible, you'll probably be able to turn to the back and find Don't worry if it's not there. You'll still make it to heaven. But, uh, uh, but if you have a good Bible, there'll be some maps in the back. And if you're looking at the Mediterranean Sea, sort of up on the top right of the Mediterranean Sea, north and then around the corner from Israel is uh, is Asia Minor, a, a province of, of the Roman Empire. All of the seven churches are on a little mail route in the province of Asia Minor, or, or Asia, uh, and uh, Ephesus is one of the, it's the, it's, it's, it's the first one you get to as you step off the ship. Your first stop is Ephesus. That's why it is the first church here. However, what else we see is that Ephesus was a major city. It's on a port. It's uh, very good for trade. It's one of the stop-off points between the west and the east of the Roman Empire, and it's a thriving metropolis that is just has so many different cultures flowing into it. It is a mega city. It's a metropolis. They have one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there, um, back when it was, a, was still standing, was the temple to Diana or Uh, depending which name they give it, the Temple of Artemis. We're gonna see that come up in Acts chapter 19. Tremendous, massive temple, beautiful structure, if it wasn't so pagan. 127 enormous meter and a half white pillars and all sorts of debauchery and horrible things happened in that temple in worship to Artemis. And it was built on history so far so called co- you know tells us so called is that a, a meteorite fell to earth from the gods and on that meteorite they built the great temple so this is the kind of uh, kind of uh, place that we're in this is Ephesus the capital of the Roman Empire in the east the capital of the Roman Empire in the west was of course Rome the the capital city but the capital of of uh, the Roman Empire in the east was Asia uh, in the Asian area, was Ephesus. So a very, very uh, pro- uh, uh, influential city in the area, both religiously and culturally. Now what happened is Acts uh, uh, 19 shows us that Paul would end up spending 2 Two years and three months in Ephesus, which is a pretty long amount of time compared to how long he usually spent places, usually got chased out by then. But Acts 19 shows us the, the enormous influence that happened um, in, in, in Ephesus under his preaching. He was there as the planting pastor. He moved on and later sent back Timothy because he needed to sort out some of the the feminist feminist ladies who were trying to become pastors and preachers and he needed to weed that out and a bunch of other errors that were going on. So he sends back Timothy, his own protege. Church history will then tell us that later on, they also had the apostle John was their pastor for a while, to whom was written the letter of the Ephesians, the 1st and 2nd Timothy letters, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John plus this letter. That is seven letters, all encompassing from the Apostle John, Paul himself, and Jesus. Pretty significant. They have an amazing spiritual pedigree. Their you know, first few founding pastors was a very impressive list. They, uh, in Acts chapter 19, 20, I, I trust that you're there by now. What happens is Paul, in those first few verses, Paul gets into Ephesus, and he finds, um, up to about uh, verse, uh, uh, verse 7, what happens is he comes there and he finds that there are Jews who had repented when they'd gone to Jerusalem. They'd repented in the baptism of John. They'd believed in the coming Messiah, that had hoped for the kingdom, and then went back home once the holiday was ended and had not, apparently, they didn't go back to Pentecost and hear the preaching. They skipped that holiday. They skipped the Passover when Jesus was killed. They hadn't yet heard about Jesus or the Holy Spirit. So John comes in. He finds these faithful Jews. He preaches Christ to them, prays over them. The Holy Spirit comes. They're converted a ready-baked church. He gets there, five minutes later, the timer goes off, he's got one prepared earlier by the Holy Spirit. There you go. He's already got a church. And then with those men, he starts witnessing and uh, teaching, uh, as a rabbi would have been allowed to do, or somebody like Paul. He goes into Ephesus and goes to the synagogue. This was the, like the, the Jewish church, where they gathered on the Saturday and heard the rabbinical teachings and whatnot. This was part of uh, Paul's missionary um, uh, uh, method he would, as a Jew, go to the Jewish churches or the synagogues and start preaching Jesus from the Old Testament until he got kicked out or butchered or they all believed. Now what happens is he's there for three months, then they finally kick him out, and then he goes from them to the Hall of Tyrannus, which is the best I can think of it would be an example like a TED Talk theater. Or a, an open-air area where everybody gathers around and discusses new and relevant things of the day, like, a, like, a, like Facebook, but in the actual real world. Yeah, people back then used to actually get together and talk about stuff. Crazy. In, in, in their world, what the, the Greeks would have the sort of the morning session of working. It would finish at 11, and then at 5 p.m., they would start working again once the heat of the day was over. And in the middle, they would have a great siesta. You go home, you rest, you hang out. Uh, oftentimes, you just hang out in the city. Paul utilized that period of time, it tells us, um, here between verse 8 down to um, uh, uh, verse 10, tells us that he utilized that period of the day. So of course, he would have been making tents on the side. So full-time job, working as much as any other guy to make his labor, uh, to make his, his living. But then in the rest time, so this would be the equivalent from 5:30 knockoff until 9 pm. at night for us. In that period, he would then go and preach in the hall of Tyrannus, a big common hall, a a community hall, and teach and preach the word of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. Look at what it uh, it says in verse 9 to 10. Uh, But when some became stubborn, this is while he was still in the synagogue, and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, those who had been converted. And he was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That is a phenomenal statement that we will frequently skip over. You go and listen to somebody give a, give a brief overview of the, the history of the first century. You go and watch a movie based on it. You will not think, but by, by what they show us, that we should expect to think of the first century as being basically turned on its head on society-wide in the capital cities because of the preaching of the gospel. But that was happening. Paul, Paul was there for two whole years, so through with his disciples that were with him, with the, the disciples of the Lord, I should say, with the converted Jews and the, the other uh, Gentiles who had been saved, he was there doing, doing debates, doing public Bible studies, doing classes, doing lectures, doing open air preaching and sermons for two years. Five days, that's 30, uh, five hours, six days a week. That will be 30 hours a week. He is preaching the Lord Jesus Christ to such a fervor and to such a fever pitch that the entire country hears the word of the Lord. I don't think we should think that literally every soul that was on, the, on that area of the province of Rome had come and heard Paul personally. But what it means is, you can go basically to any area in Asia at the time and go, have you heard Paul? And if somebody says... I'm not sure who's Paul. I'm not up to date with all this. I don't keep, keep up to date with the celebrities. I don't watch E! News. They say, oh, well, well have you heard about the guy who died and rose and people are forgiven in his name? Oh, yeah, everybody's heard about that. The whole nation had been swept with this message of the gospel. You couldn't sit down at a skate park or go to a book club or go to a community hall and ask the people, have you heard of Jesus that Paul preaches and everybody say no? The nation was just baptized, if you let me use that language, not literally, but baptized with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Small band of believers, one guy with open scrolls preaching the gospel. Amazing influence. We see another couple of things happen. If you go down to verse 21, uh, 11 to 20 shows us a little story of a guy tries to use Paul's name to cast out demons and he just gets whooped and gets beaten naked. It's a tremendous read, but go and read it later. Uh, More relevant, verse 21, what happens is that the influence of that local church, Right, so if Ephesus is now... Younger than two years, right? We're not yet at the point that Paul left. So less than two years, the 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 church has been planted. They've got thriving megachurch, people coming in from everywhere, and occultism and paganism is uprooted in the city. So in fact, I, I said go to 21, but in fact, go to verse 18. It says, Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Okay, that's this is a little bit of bad news. You're a pastor, Paul's been a pastor here, and then like a whole bunch of the converted Christians that he's baptized and a discipling come forward and say, were we not supposed to be doing the Ouji board? Were we not supposed to be using tarot cards and speaking to angels? My, like still happens today in many churches, I know. People come out and don't even realize that's wrong. You do that, stop it, repent, it's sinful, God hates it. Nonetheless, many Christians at this, age, at this point were doing that. They're all coming forward and realizing, Oh, I'm not allowed to study the Old Testament and the Bible and the apostles' teaching alongside my books of black magic. Crazy. Didn't know that. What what a turn of events. And so what happens is they all come forward. They're all uh, confessing and divulging their practices. Massive confession is going place, verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So you've got a huge amount of people that had once been new age spiritualists and dark magic worshipers, converted and now they're in the church and now they're having a post-conversion confession. They're burning all of their books. What it says, they counted the value of them, of all the books they were burning and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver was a day's wage on the average average wage in Ephesus. That is the equivalent of fifty thousand days' work, which did the math about a million bucks in our day. If we take an average wage of twenty bucks an hour, a million dollars worth of bl- now. If I'm the pastor, I wouldn't get them to count it because I know what I'd be tempted to do with the books. I'd open up a little dark library off to the side and make the million back for the kingdom. I'd use it for the kingdom. They count the money, they know how much they're about to sacrifice and they burn the lot. Now here's the point. A million dollars worth of books was not owned by 10 or 20 people. There was an enormous, nor- neither did everybody who was being converted out of this pagan practice have one of the books. Only some people would. So you've got an enormous amount, in other words, an enormous amount of spiritualists being converted, living, leaving an enormous dent, not just in their literature and the library, because now we're burning it all, but also in the amount of worshipers and practices of that religion. The Ephesian church had just taken a massive slog of them into themselves and baptized them because they had been converted by the gospel. That's one thing. It was basically uprooting occultism In Ephesus. The second thing this local church was doing in its very early years, now look down at verse 21, uh, uh, was that it was um, uh, uprooting also the pagan worship of Artemis. It says that there was, uh, after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia, okay, so he was gonna go away. Uh, Verse 23 and at that time there arose no little disturbance, meaning a massive disturbance. Concerning the way, that is what they would call the Christian lifestyle. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So again, brought lots of business to the crafts guys. He's making a killing off making the little metal idols for all of the uh, you know the worshippers to come and buy. This is the this is the equivalent of the little little Buddhas that people make. You know, buy one of these. You know, you visit Tokyo, you buy a Buddha so that you can worship and. They don't, they don't care what spiritual significance it has. They care that it's making them a lot of money. Um, and so this is the guy. He's, he's crafting the idols that people buy to go and worship. And his complaint, he says in verse 25, He gathered together with the workmen in the similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. They're very wealthy men because they extort people through their, through their trade. He says, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. What an awesome thing it is to hear worshipers of false idols tremble in their boots. I love hearing that. I love the fear that's on his face. as We were rich. Our income has just about stopped because the nation has stopped worshiping the idols that we make. They're worried for their income. Imagine if so many people were were converted into Christianity in the Brisbane region, that the casinos, the pubs, the strip clubs, they all shut down because people were worshipping Jesus. And we got to go and plant churches in the Royal Casino and take those historical buildings back for Jesus. That would be awesome. That's what we pray for. I hope that's what you pray for. Nonetheless, this is what is happening. They're losing money. The, the entire economy of a city, he said the whole nation is being turned on its head. They've got a recession on their hands because there's so many people spending their money differently. What an amazing effect. But I love is his pathetic complaint. He's not just saying we're losing money, he said, you know what he's telling people? Gods made with hands aren't real gods. That should be just about the most obvious fact in all of logic. If you make it, it didn't make you. Pretty simple. And he's so cut by it. Like The people who believe stupid, idiotic, pagan things, even today, get really offended when you say things. Like men can't be pregnant. There's two genders. There's only one God. Stuff like that. Does Still today, people get terribly offended. And here he is. He's crying to this great group, we're going to lose all our money. Because you know what he's telling people? Very basic facts. Verse 27. And there is a danger that not only in this trade of ours may come in disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Oh no, God needs you to defend her. Defend him and that she, sorry her and that she may even be deposed from her magnificent magnificence this god is a very fragile unstable god who she whom all asia and the world worship doesn't it feel great to be able to look back on history and just tell demetrius with no apology your god was deposed first of all it happened when jesus rose from the dead he knocked every other god off their little unstable idolatrous places but also in the town of Ephesus you know what people go and visit it's mostly church sites you know what they do if they have a spare afternoon on their tour guide they say can we duck by the temple of Artemis can we just see the old ruins that now lay in the dust I hear that's kind of impressive they they wander past on their way to look at all of the great Christian monuments the temple of Artemis was destroyed because the god of Artemis was destroyed by the preaching of the gospel Paul didn't set fire to the temple. He didn't go and topple any of the idols. He preached Christ and paganism was uprooted and the economy toppled. It's an amazing, amazing fact. So this, of course, after that, a great riot turned out. Uh, people were, were throwing Christians inside the proconsul. They were chanting for hours at a time. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So great, in fact, she was in great danger of, of being bought out by, by Jesus, no worries. Anyway, so great is Artemis and Ephesians. They chanted, they chanted, and, and the proconsul said, You have to go home or you're all going to get written up for chanting and rioting because it's disorderly conduct, not allowed in Ephesus. A massive citywide riot led by these men against the way. Go back to Revelation chapter 2 now. The point is that the church that Jesus is writing to is a church not with just great spiritual pedigree of a great number of past pastors. That's good enough. But he's writing to a church that was at the zenith of missional activity. That saw a city and nation. Now it's also likely the case that most of the churches Jesus also writes to, the other churches, were planted while Paul was preaching in Ephesus. That's, I think, why it's so fitting that she is the church that is written to first. They have they they had seen amazing and intense effects of the gospel being preached in huge influence in the city. So this is the church that Jesus is writing to. Now, thirdly, Jesus identifies the church's strong points, and and they're pretty simple to see. If I was to break them down individually according to each phrase that Jesus gives, there would be nine positives, one negative, and another positive. So ten positives and one negative all up. But what we're going to do, we're sort of going to clump them together because that's a bit easier, and we don't need to go simply, uh, singly word by word for time's sake. Uh, first of all, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, in verse 2. They refer to slightly different things. Works is their good works. They're deeds of obedience. They're obeying what the apostles say to do, and they're doing good works. Christians are, by and large, obeying the commandments, The the toil here is a matter of, it's it's speaking to the degree of zealousness, the degree of effort that is going into those good deeds. They're putting lots of, it's really hard to live in Ephesus and do the good works you're commanded to do. And yet even then they are toiling, they're breaking a sweat in order to obey Jesus. Thirdly, we see their endurance. That is that as they are trying to work, the, 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 the world around them is pushing in on them. As they are trying to do good works for Jesus, their own temptations are seeing all around them. It's like Vegas. They're very much tempted by what they see around them, and yet they endure. And for that, Jesus commends them. It's a tremendous thing for Jesus to say to them, I know the works you're doing. It's a very sinful thing for us to want to see other Christians saying to us, I see everything you're doing. I commend you. Wow, you're so busy. You're doing so many works. It's a sinful part of us that wants other Christians to notice. But the reason Jesus said that, right, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Pray in secret. Don't put your your works out on display. If they're good enough, they will be evident in time anyway. The reason he would tell us that is because our greatest works are always the greatest when most pure. And they are most purely motivated when they are done for Christ and Christ alone, not the glory that comes from man. That is why he's saying here, I know your works. It's a great thing for you to be motivated by Jesus seeing your works because he is not easily and falsely impressed like our friends are. He's never going to pat you on the back and be amazed at you because you made something up or you did one thing once and they assume you do it all the time. Now he knows. He's hard to impress. He doesn't want to be impressed. We shouldn't want to try and impress him. We just want to be known by him. We want him to see our, our hard works and reward us accordingly, and he does. When Jesus sees it, he's promising you'll receive rewards for that. So this is Jesus saying to the Ephesian church, you're doing much good. I see your works, your toil, your endurance, and that is to be commended. And secondly, we see in verse two, he says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, that's number one, and you have tested those who call themselves apostles, and you are not, and you, uh, they are not, and you are finding them to be false. It's so sort of a, three-quartered, a three-stranded 3 cord here saying, you're good at church discipline. You hate what is evil, and you don't let Christians come into the church, call themselves Christians, and keep on doing the black magic. Keep on worshipping in the temple of Artemis. Keep on slandering and doing all of those sinful things that Christians shouldn't be doing. You hate what is evil, and you, you push it out. So if somebody comes in, claims Christ, continues to live in an unrepentant, evil lifestyle, church discipline works its magic convinces them to repentance or puts them out from the church it's a good thing that jesus is commending secondly though is the more dangerous thing is when the false apostles were coming to ephesus and we see this paul warns them in acts 20 when he ducked back in before he passed on again he got the ephesian elders before him he told them there's already guys in your midst even on the eldership they're gonna rise up they're gonna teach falsely and take people away by the time first At 2nd and 3rd John is written, those men had already rised up and were teaching that Jesus was not truly human and all sorts of other errors. So they had taken it correctly and, and sharply, the warning, and they had put into practice, we will not let just any old apostle come in here, do a miracle or two, and claim to have God's authority. We will test them. We will hold them to Paul's account. And if they deny those centrals of the gospel, they will be thrown away. They were doing it well. On that, they were also commended. Jesus is saying to them really in this, in this twofold way. And, and then thirdly, he says in verse three, you are enduring patiently and you are bearing up for my name's sake. In, in this, he's saying in both these things, in church productivity and in church discipline, both good things You are are not growing weary. You are pushing forward. You're not letting the difficulty of life in a a pagan city slow you down. That is good, commendable. Jesus knows it and he encourages them in it. Uh, One verse, if we go down to uh, verse six, we see the same theme repeated, though a different specific situation. He says, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's unclear to us historically exactly what the teaching of the Nicolaitans were. It's probably, if we throw a couple of clues together, it's probably something mixed with idolatry and sexual immorality. That's what it seems like, uh, but we don't ultimately specifically know. The point is there was a heretic who was teaching people to live sinfully and to act sinfully while naming Christ's name. And Paul says, you hate the people Jesus hates. You were unkind to them. You were ungentle with them. You kicked them in the backside. They were removed without apology. And Jesus loved that. Good job. That's what we should take from here. So again, church productivity, lots of obedience, church discipline, lots of purity, lots to be commended here. Things that we should pursue, things that we should strive for and consider as absolute positives. But fourthly, Jesus now identifies their error, their look at verse 4 he says but this I have against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first now we need to remember that when Jesus speaks to Christians he really and ultimately has nothing against us in the sense of legal condemnation Jesus does not condemn anybody in him because that would be to condemn himself we are in him And yet what he means when he says, I have this against you is not, I have have laws that you haven't met and which are going to condemn you and and you better make yourself righteous. But rather what he means is, I have things that you are, I have a list of things that you are not doing to respond rightly to the grace you have received. There are ways that you are living unworthily. You're claiming Christ, claiming the grace, claiming the spirit, claiming the word of God. You're holding on to it and then living out of step with that. And one of the things, and he says to them that you have not just grown cold, not just struggled, not just ground to a halt, but you have abandoned your first love. Now, it is usually at this point that a pastor will try and convince, you know, tell stories about remember when you first fell in love, or remember when you first had a kid, or remember when you first, I don't know, it's something else that you like doing, uh, and there was all those warm and fuzzies and do you remember when you were first converted and there really is such a phenomenon as this first ignited love for Christ often with with people who are newly converted without having been you know often raised up in a Christian life sometimes it's it, it, it is in that case as well that's my case grew up Christian family had a conversion still I remember having that initial warmth that burning that zeal in the Christian life that's great not what John is talking about not what Jesus is speaking the point is not that they have They have grown cold where they used to be so zealously warm and intimate with Jesus. He's not talking about the internal warm and fuzzies. And we know this because the solution to not having the first love is doing works. But if he was saying, your heart is not in the right place, you need to get it back into the the deep love of Jesus, if that's what he was saying, then he would not then say, and here's how you fix it, do the works you did at first. He would instead say, fan into flame the love that is in your heart. So look, he says, uh, uh, verse 4, I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. Verse 5, he ends it with, so repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come and remove your lampstand. The reality is that what Jesus is saying to Ephesus, of course it has something to do with their internal love to Jesus. But that is not primarily what he is saying. The first love that they had, which is the same as the first works that they were doing, is what Acts 19 tells us identified the Ephesian church right from the outset, which was influence. Now that can sound like a dirty word, in evangelicalism, especially in a reformed church. You're not allowed you know, to desire influence. What you know, You're know, you not the popular ones. You don't have a great reputation. What are we saying here? The mass amount of followings, more people in the door, no matter what, at any cost. Is that what we're saying? No. What if Ephesus and their, their, their early church years was identified as was a bright, shining gospel witness that pushed back the darkness and toppled the, 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 the strongholds of the devil in an entire nation. That's, what we know. That's all that we're told about Ephesus happens there. And then, and then we get this. You've fallen from the love or the works you did at first. I think that what we ought to uh, realize is that Jesus is telling them, I haven't heard the cries of the idol makers much anymore. You're not damaging their economy as much. as You listened to them, didn't you? You got around a table. You had a cute little council meeting. You said, we didn't mean to be so, so uh, uh, objectionable and we didn't mean to be so in your face about Christianity. We didn't realize we were affecting the culture. We didn't mean to do that. No, 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 we're so sorry. We'll preach a little quieter. We'll just do it on Sundays. We'll move out of the hall of Tyrannus. Why don't we have a conversation instead of a debate, right? The church allowed themselves to draw back from their missional influence. It's as if Jesus is saying, everybody's filling the occultists' gatherings again. Everybody's buying the books again. They're back into the magic arts and I don't hear the occultists screaming out because their their followers are being, you stopped converting the customers of Satan and you don't seem to care, Jesus is saying. It's It's as if the nation has stopped hearing about Jesus of Ephesus and you're okay with that because it happened once. You can rest on your laurels and say, remember when, though? Right? Well, we, we got the Hall of Fame up of our former pastors. We've got the, the stories. We published a book about it. It's in our history. We had an amazing missional revival in the past. It was cool. Remember the glory days? But they had ground themselves to a halt, where while they were being obedient in many things internally and while they were disciplining things and staying pure They had drawn to a a stop on their momentum of seeing souls saved. They had drawn away from their first love. I think one of the other reasons that we can take this to be picturing, uh, to be speaking about their, their zealous evangelism, not just their warm and fuzzies, is because Jesus is using the language to them specifically of the lampstands. And the lampstands give out light. The lampstands are like a picture of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, that we are to be the light of the world. Uh, the, 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 that, uh, uh, Paul saw himself as fulfilling that Isaiah 49, I believe, prophecy of being a light to the Gentiles. He's using this imagery of the light-giving uh, 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 ob, uh, object because that's what the church is meant to be. And that is why he then threatens them by saying, if you don't turn the heat up, if you don't proclaim Christ again, if you don't use the hill that the city is on, remember Jesus also said, the church is meant to be a city on top of a hill. No one's supposed to miss it. You're not supposed to be a little country town that is a little sanctuary city that no one cares about. You are supposed to be public with your proclamation. You're not supposed to take a light thank God for it and put it under a little bushel, under a little basket and thank God that we and my family, were at least saved. We don't really need to go out there and get anybody else. They had reversed this whole imagery. So Jesus is speaking to them as a light giving lampstand saying, do the thing you're supposed to do as a lampstand. Give out the light, preach the gospel, do what you did back in the early days. And so that is the warning. He identifies his warning to them. He says, remember from where you have fallen, repent, and then do the works. In other words, he tells them to remember, to repent, and return. They have in their past, pretty recent history, at least the last two decades probably, maybe even less, depending on when Revelation was written. They have the memory of when this great missional activity bursting out of the seams of Ephesus was happening. They remember it, and they don't mind that they're not there anymore. And Jesus is saying, look back, Recall what that was like. Recall losing count of how many baptisms there were. Remember when you were meeting people every week? You thought you were the new guy because you got converted two weeks. Turns out there's a hundred more people in the church more recently than you. Remember when you're just sending missionaries out to all the other cities and planning churches? Remember when the fire of the gospel was just burning? That's supposed to ignite something in us. Now, some of us, we've not been in churches where that has been happening, or we just don't really have the experience of that to look back on. I think another version of remembering might not be our own history, but we can remember what God has done in people of the past. Read revival history. Read reformation, puritanical, gospel ministry biographies. Read Charles Spurgeon. That's a command. I bind your conscience. (laughs) I encourage you with the love of Christ. I compel you. Read Charles Spurgeon's autobiography. Read some of these amazing works of God and tell yourself they were just people I'm just a person. There's nothing about that first generation in Ephesus. There's nothing about 1800s London. There's nothing about 1907 in Korea that says that's supposed to lead to revival more than now. So remember, we can can remember God's works if we can't remember our own. Next he says, repent, which really just means don't fight what I'm saying right now. Take it on the chin, Ephesus. Don't, 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 Redesign and redefine your church mission and say, Well, we were about winning the nations for Christ. Like our original mission that our church agreed on was, our mission statement was, Make disciples of all nations. But now I think our mission statement is, Mature the disciples that come to us. You see the difference? They were trying to repent and go, Well, Jesus, we're not failing anymore. We've just changed our vision. No. Repent. Listen to what Jesus, the Lord of the church, is saying, the priest among the lampstands, he makes the calls. He says you're in sin. They ought to believe it. And so we ought to. Where we hear Jesus speaking to us, we ought to acknowledge it, not fight it, but repent. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And then return. Just go back and do the works you were doing. I, I think it's it's significant here that he doesn't say, Love me more, and then the works will follow. My pastoral advice is always do the works and the heart will follow. Pray, expect that the heart will follow. Ask God that the heart will be in it, but do the works first because the sin of not feeling it is not an excuse to sin further by not doing it. If you don't feel it, so you don't do it, at least do it because you can control that and God will bring the feelings. Do the works is Jesus' focus. Do the works that you did At first, that is their sign of repentance. And he says in verse five, if you will not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So three times he's now used the word repent. Do it, there's consequences. What what we should see here is Jesus is saying, I'll remove the lampstand from its place is not that any individual will lose their salvation. He's not gonna come out and snuff out individual souls. What he means is I'm gonna take the corporate church symbolized by the lampstand And I'm going to remove you from my presence. I'm going to remove you from its place, which is in his presence. And secondarily, the place is in Ephesus. So again, he's going to dissolve the church in Ephesus. Maybe that will happen because there's a a revival in occult, Like Jesus can shut down churches in many different ways. Maybe there's a revival in occultism and it just drowns out the Christians and they, they, they whittle off and die. Maybe there's persecution and so all the Christians run and there's no functional church anymore maybe God gives them bad leaders and the bad leaders lead them down the path that they're no longer a true church and the lampstand has been removed. Maybe they all just stop caring. They all move out to the, to the farms where they can grow their plants and, and farm their chickens and just feel much better about some heaven on earth. Stop preaching Jesus. Be much nicer in a little community. They go off and they, they start a little, uh, a little, little uh, uh, intentional community behind very high walls and there's no more church in Ephesus. Jesus can close a church however he wants. I don't know how it happened. But right now, there's no church in Ephesus. There's barely a town. There is no city because it has been uh, ruined over over the ages. No church in history uh, in Ephesus anymore. That is the threat of Jesus. But look in verse 7 what he promises. He identifies the reward of those who conquer by obeying. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is, all those in Ephesus who were truly born again by the Word of God, now listen to the Word of God. If you were regenerated by the Spirit and given you ears, then listen to the voice of the Spirit as he carries the words of Jesus. Listen. If you're a true Christian, then listen. To the one who conquers, maybe your version says overcomes, basically same word. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is a picture of of gospel promises. Jesus, had, Adam lost paradise in the Garden of Eden through his disobedience. Jesus has come down, paid for Adam's sin, paid for your sin by dying on the cross, resurrected, and said, "We're going back to the garden." It's going to be a better garden. You're going to have clothes on. It's going to be a better garden. It'll be filled with people. It's going to be a better garden. It'll be worldwide, not just a little garden. It's going to be a better garden. It'll be impenetrable by the dragon, the serpent who will be in the second death. It's going to be a better garden. You won't be tested as to which tree you eat. You'll just be able to eat the whole lot all for your eternal life. It's going to be a better garden because Jesus, the embodied God in human flesh will be there and every human is invited with the condition that you believe Jesus, that you believe in Jesus, that you have faith in Jesus. And if you do, if God looks at you and sees sin throughout your entire life, but you have believed in Jesus, that he died for you and rose for you and is the exalted king, then all of your sin is forgiven. He gives to you his spirit, which sanctifies and grows and makes us bold and obedient. And therefore we are called conquerors. Not because we brandish a sword and kill our enemies. But because we hold fast and we obey despite the external persecution and especially in Ephesus' situation, obeying, holding fast, holding on to the word, having faith in Christ, believing his word and obeying despite the inward lethargy if you hold fast to that, if you conquer your own inward lethargy, you repent, you return to do the works you did at 1st Ephesus, you will join me in the paradise of God. And that is the call of Jesus to the Ephesian church. There's a couple of applications before we close out. Number one, only Jesus can shut a church down which means when the government stands up or a denomination stands up or some person who wants to split a church stands up or a false apostle stands up and starts to barrage the church and divide them and twist the truth, they have no power except the power that Jesus lets them have to purify the church. We see that next week with Smyrna. But no one is able to stop, the, stop a local church. You might have five people, 50 people, 500 people. If they're a local church, Nothing can close them down. It as a body is immortal because it's, in G- it's Jesus who protects them. And yet, when Jesus sees impurity and unrepentance to such a degree that it would be better to not have this witness for him in the world than to let him continue and give a bad witness, then he closes them down and nothing can stop him. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. Doesn't matter who your, who, your, who your former elders are. Doesn't matter the history you've had and the stories written about your church. If it doesn't repent, Jesus can close them down. He's the Lord of the church. That gives us hope, and it gives us warning. It gives us encouragement, and it gives us warning. But secondly, <coughs> our second uh, second application as we close out is that doctrinal purity is for mission. Doctrinal purity. is... Is not the mission. What Ephesus had done is it had gotten so good at church discipline, so good at its teaching, so good at its catechizing and its confessions and all of its theology that, that that having a pure church that believed the right thing was the mission. And so it was like cleaning a car engine. It's good to have a clean car engine. Why? So that it can run safely and efficiently for the good of other people, for its purpose. It's not good to have a clean engine full stop. If your goal, if your mission becomes the clean engine, well, you're not allowed to drive it anymore. You're not going to take it out to where people need it. You're not going to do the things it was meant to do because the aim is to keep it clean at all costs. So you put it in the garage, polish the outside, put a cover over it, lock the garage, hide the key. That's what a church can become like when doctrinal purity is our highest goal. Doctrinal purity is never unimportant. You know that just by being here. We're a doctrinally pure church and we fight for that. We teach that. We love that. And yet it's not the mission. We have doctrinal purity so that the engine of the church runs well, so that the Spirit can bless our teaching and preaching and our evangelism and our witness, so that souls are one to the glory of Jesus. It has to be that order. Some of you have been in churches where the aim is doctrinal purity. The ultimate aim the only thing we care about is how much you've memorized and what catechism you like and what confessions you have. And you need to be able to tell me who you disagree with especially. It's all about that. I said at the church plant last week to some of the new believers, and I'll say it again now, I am infinitely more encouraged when I see a new believer start taking wads of gospel tracts and going with with not even knowing much. And to be honest, wish they knew more. But with a wad of gospel tracts, going out and preaching the gospel, they hardly know how to defend they hardly know the church history of. They just know the basics of. A little awkward at times. When they take those tracks. they go out and they witness infinitely more encouraging than when a new believer takes up John Calvin's institutes and starts memorizing. Why? Because no theology is bad? Nope. Because winning souls is the mission. That's where we need to remind ourselves as we finish out in Ephesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that any person tonight, regardless of what other people think of them, what they think of themselves, what they've told other people, however many other times they thought they got converted, however however fallen they may think themselves to be or unsavable, whatever situation they're at, you, Lord God, can bring people into true, spiritual, eternal life this moment if they simply trust and believe on Jesus and decide in their heart to stop trying to earn righteousness and simply rest in Jesus. To them, Lord God, Jesus is offered. To them, the paradise, the garden, heaven, eternity, your presence is open to them. Would you bring them in? Others of us, Lord God, have been converted, and yet we have allowed ourselves to grow cold in our love for you and for others, for God and for neighbor. And so we do not speak of Jesus to them. We, we've desired and even even legitimized uh, a, a kind of Christian lifestyle that doesn't proclaim, that believes that but, but does not proclaim, that has been transferred into the kingdom but does not proclaim the excellencies of the kingdom, as Peter tells us. Father God, I, I pray that we would be those that are, maybe reigniting tonight because we remember a time when we would speak boldly and encourage people and pray for people and and, and, and evangelize in the office and find time to go out to the streets and talk to our family members. We, we remember a time like that. Some of us, we don't remember. And so Lord, would you ignite it for the first time? But would you give to us that, that first love like Ephesus has had that we ought to have? Would you give that to us, Lord God? And would you make us a church that does not feel satisfied with who we've had here, who our pastors have been, what our history is, the things I know, the books I've read, any of that. But would we be set on winning disciples, winning souls for the Lord Jesus Christ because that is the mission that you've given to us. Father God, we thank you that you are gracious or we would have no hope. Jesus, we thank you to continue to be our priest and our advocate or we would have no hope. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are still in our midst, working to grow us, never giving up on us, and building us up into maturity of Christ, or else we would have no hope. In all these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ and together say, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reform Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.